This is the Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to the Hindu on Books podcast. I'm your host G Sampat. Today we are joined by two distinguished scholars who have closely documented and analyzed the changing social and political trends in India for close to half a century. Professor Yan Bremen and Professor Gansham Shah. The two of them have come out with a new book titled Gujarat Cradle and Harbinger of Identity Politics India's Injurious Frame of Communalism. This book is a collection of essays written by Bremen and Shah. It is an attempt to answer the question of why the majoritarian politics of Hindutva found fertile ground in Gujarat of all places. It also examines how Using the state as a laboratory of sorts, Hindutva ideologues perfected a strategy for extracting political dividend from bigotry and ideological favor. The essays also argue that Hindutva cannot be understood without taking cognizance of its unique model of neoliberal economics which draws on a rich heritage of mercantile capitalism and today promotes big business and corporate interests. Bremen and Shah further argue that the two-pronged exclusion perpetrated by Hindutva politics, social exclusion on the basis of identity and economic exclusion due to rising inequalities doesn't bode well for the future. In this edition of the Hindu On Books podcast, we speak with Bremen and Shah about the history of communal politics in India, how it has evolved over the years, Gujarat's role in its expansion and whether it is changing the average Indian's sense of nationhood and what it means to be an Indian. Jan Breben is Professor Emeritus of Comparative Sociology at the University of Amsterdam, an honorary fellow at the International Institute of Social History Amsterdam. Gansham Shah is retired professor of Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi, and was earlier Dr. Ambedkar Chair Professor at the Lal Bahadur Shastri National Academy of Administration, Mansuri. Professor Breben and Professor Shah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and uh, it's a pleasure, uh, Sampad. Jan, to start with, let me address your question to you first. Of all the states in India, what is so unique about Gujarat that made it a fertile ground for communalism to take root? You have worked in Gujarat in terms of fieldwork and other aspects as well for a long time. Is it something about the distribution of the various caste groups, or is it the tradition of mercantilism, or is it something else that makes Gujarat stand out? I'll uh, certainly reply that, but before that, a short comment on your introduction, uh, Sampat. In the introduction, you mentioned that our book, it is an anthology. It was written, basically, most chapters, while Hindutva had already made its impact in Gujarat over the last uh, 30 years or so. So it is uh, bringing back what we wrote while Hindutva was making its impact. That, I think, is important to uh, to understand the, the character and the nature and the direction of the book. Now your first question. Uh, what is so peculiar about uh, Gujarat? Certainly not the caste distribution. Certainly not the caste distribution, which is not much different for every, every region. Every uh, part of India has, has its own history, of course. But the caste distribution as such is not peculiar to uh, Gujarat. Then the mercantile uh, tradition, that, that is very much there in Gujarat, and already since long. It has been a, a stronghold of uh, 
Brahmanical and, and Banya forces uh, in, uh, in history also. But again, the mercantile tradition is not so exceptional. It is not uh, only Gujarat, which is flavored by that. You see the Marwaris from Rajasthan, the Chetiyas from Tamil Nadu. So also in that sense, mercantile tradition is not unique to Gujarat. No, the distinctive feature is the high caste caucus, which acted as the think tank for turning a small minority into a dominating force in an electoral design. That started in the, basically in the third quarter of the 20th century, after independence, the, the third quarter of the, the century, which saw the build-up of rightist parties. Swatantra first, but followed closely by the uh, Yansang party. And the Yansang party was also a rightist party, and both uh, basically catered to higher caste and class. And the Yansang party was the political arm of the RSS. The RSS broke away from the political opposition against Congress, which was supposedly, so it was presented, a socialist policy. They confronted that policy with, rightist, with a rightist program. And in 1980, seeing that their electoral following would never succeed in getting a majority, they catered mainly to the, as I said, to the higher caste and classes. And then in 1980, the RSS broke up the coalition and founded the in opposition to Congress and founded the BJP. That change in political strategy built a much broader base than only the upper caste, the twice-born. It was the build-up of a, of, a, of a major party. It was a planned and designed by a caucus which, which had many Gujaratis in, sitting uh, in, in Ahmedabad. Basically, they were concentrated, but there were also outsiders. From. But wasn't this high-caste caucus, which you say uh, is, was like the de facto think tank for the right wing, wasn't that, traditionally it seemed to be based in Nagpur, isn't it? Nagpur and Maharashtra and so Maharashtrian Brahmins. But you're saying Gujaratis uh, are at the forefront, is there? I mean politicians. We are now talking about the professional politicians. It was a caucus in, in RSS, of course, RSS was also rightist in elect economic terms. But it was a major political, a political interference in a political intervention to create a mass basis. That was the RSS caucus, the caucus which set up the BJP and designed a political strategy to base a mass following. More than only the higher caste and, and classes. And not only that, they did not design that carefully in their electoral uh, campaigns. But they also founded branch organizations, a number of associations, PHP, Bajrangdal, uh, a wing for women, for students, for trade union. It was the formation of a political, social and cultural cadre, which mobilized the people at large to join uh, Hindutva. That was the unique feature. It was uh, planned and executed from Gujarat, but it was not unique to Gujarat. It had from the very beginning intended a national program. Right. So you're saying that this, this high caste caucus entering the political fray uh, in, a, in a planned fashion was something that sets Gujarat apart. And that's why it is called also a laboratory. And that's why we are talking about the Gujarat model. That Gujarat model was a plan, a political plan, a political design and executed.
right gansham would you like to add something to what yana said in this in this question i think one or two general thing first i think yana has very right mention i would say correct it that is not commercial contrary commercial uh, factor that was there but i think let us remember two or three things one when the tilak and banga in the 19th century began with communal politics gujarat was free from gujarat was not interested in that though gujarati financial financed the bombay international congress but they were kept away when two congresses met in gujarat they were not with they were with gokhle also let us see gandhi's impact but we will talk to later uh, but again in this context in 1952 the first elections all the three hindutva parties ramrajya parishad hindu bud hindu mahasabha as well as jansang all the three got less than 3% of the total votes and most of the votes were from saurashtra and that too from grassland landed class and not from the mercantile or there were few brahmins here and there at in 1969 the major riot that the book has discussed at length even in 1971 gancham sorry to interrupt but uh, i just wanted to underscore one thing you 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 mentioned right now you are saying that in the first elections in 1952 when jansang got what 3% of the votes most of the votes came from gujarat and specifically from saurashtra from the landed classes is it what you just said i was the feudal classes you were not the one the landed okay but the go but the votes were from gujarat no no at that time saurashtra was a different state saurashtra joined the gujarat later on in in 1962 i am talking about this. at present day gujarat saurashtra is included and one has to take cognizance of saurashtra where bjp or the hindutva forces began their journey from rajkot and other places so i said that at that time the gujarat was a part of the bilingual bombay state so when the gujarat and saurashtra together these three parties did not get very impressive vote and whatever they got is only from saurashtra and not from the mainland gujarat and that is very important okay why, why do you say that's important important because if you say the early 50s or till the late 70s or the mid 70s bjp or rss tried building a cultural context in gujarat they were not giving the priority to get a power in 71 they got only 3 seats and less than 5% votes even in 1980 their presence in vidhan sabha was negligible and all of a sudden in 80s onwards they jump so they all the time they built built up what i call is a built up in civil society they penetrated in civil society and we will discuss about 80s i will repeat again these things about it so my point that why i want to emphasize is that they have built up from 80s onwards in gujarat right I mean, speaking of the eighties and and later period, I mean, some of the essays in this book I've I've noticed. I mean, they they also look 
closely at how communal riots have evolved over the years. So, can you talk a little bit about to what extent communal riots are necessary to build uh, this communal consciousness? Because you were just talking about how they built up a cultural context uh, for the kind of politics that was, that was to follow later. So, so communal rights, of course, they are not merely giving vent to something. They are, I, I believe, necessary to build this communal consciousness. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I fully agree with you. I think there's a long essay, and that was my first essay uh, of the 69. It was a major riot. Uh, the 69 riot was out of a minor incident. And nothing happened in Ahmedabad for one day. So after one day, it sparked again. But important is that from after the Indo-Path War in 65, Madhok came several times. They built up uh, cow protections, demanded a law against the cow slaughter. During that period, they formed the Vishwa Hindu Parishad and all these kind of things. And they built up it over a period of time. And that's what I describe in, in that chapter. So the 69 rash took place. But at the same time in the 71, 70, 70, Lok Sabha election 71, Johnson in election had a very little presence. And till the 75, it was just a remote. There was something like that. So now coming back, the purpose of a communal riot is create the insecurity from 69 onwards is a boost up the nationalism against Pakistan, then create a hatred against the Muslims. Now, I think one fact which is not mentioned in the book, but I have written and published, uh, the, I studied the 73 communal riot that was small riot in Ahmedabad for three years. And interestingly, and it's important to note that on the basis of a police data, which at that time I had access, majority those who were involved were the lumpen, which continues till today. But more important is that the majority who were arrested from the upper caste and the middle caste, and where we call a middle caste today is the Patidars, who are now part of him. But from 80s onwards, particularly 85 onwards, the majority participants are from OBC and Dalits. And the upper caste remain in the background in planning, directing, financing, and all kinds of things. This was not the case before 85? Before 85, it was upper caste and middle class who were doing the execution as well? Relatively large number, yeah. Okay. So, Jan, would you like to add anything to this? Yes, a short uh, episode. What is in under, uh, important to understand the rise of Hindutva in, uh, in Gujarat? is the closing down of the corporate textile mills in the latter uh, decades of the 20th century. It was a huge workforce at work in, uh, in, in, uh, in many of these uh, corporate textile mills. And they closed down one factory after the other. And it led to a massive dismissal of its workforce. Massive dismissal. You have to understand the importance of that, the political importance of that also, because the job of mill worker in one of these uh, textile mills was a very, it, it provided a decent and dignified life and work. A mill worker was proud to be a mill worker. And all of a sudden, 
this uh, workforce was uh, dismissed overnight and often without any compensation or even payment of the last wages. And they were sent to the informal sector of the economy, what is called the informal sector of the economy, which is, of course, nowadays uh, more than 90% of the total workforce in uh, India. This informalization politics was a fall from grace was a fall from grace. And I still remember, because I I did a study on that closing down of the textile mills, and I remember talking to uh, Dalit fathers who had lost their job and commiserated with me about their sons having no work now, having no, no uh, plan what to do in life, where to work. It would be in the informal economy. And that meant unskilled, cheap labor, and casual labor. No jobs. No jobs. The jobs were gone. And that moment in time is very important because we saw it all over India. And I remember talking to some of these uh, Dalit fathers who told me how their sons were now undergoing training by Bajrang Dal. Bajrang Dal was a training ground for Dalit boys and young men to wipe up hate against the Muslims. And these fathers told me how they had worked together with Muslims in the factory, standing next to each other, how they were living in the same quarters around the mills, and how they met each other walking to the mill and going back home, how they met in reading rooms, how they met in in, uh, primary health uh, clinics in the neighborhood. That fabric, that social fabric, was torn apart. But not only that, the Bajrangdal, and you already uh, uh, remember the name of Babu Bajrangi, one of those who committed horrible crimes in 2002 when a pogrom was carried out on the Muslims of not only in Ahmedabad, but Ahmedabad was the center of that. So we see here how communal hate has been incited, has been used as an instrument to wipe up hate against the uh, minority. And there we see the ghettoization taking place, driving out the Muslims from their quarters around the mill and sending, deporting them basically to what are called all over India, mini Pakistans. That, you know, was the difference between the communal violence in the past and in the present. In the past, when there was communal violence, when it blew up, then social workers would rush to the spot and the, and, the, and the state would move in and defuse the violence. The new round of violence was blowing, blowing it up, inciting people to fight against the enemy in their midst. So it was that which became the label for, for the Muslims, stoking communal hatred, leading to ghettoization and segregation. Right. I mean, that's an interesting point you've made, Jan, about uh, the shutting down of textile mills and, and, and the resultant unemployment and loss of ability to... Well, it was more than loss of job. It was taking away, you know, as I said, the job of a mill worker was a proud achievement. And it created stability. It created hope for a better future. It created hope for growing equality. And that, all of a sudden was undermined with the closing down of mills. And not only that, what then happened was inciting hate against the people who all belong 
to the same class, the working class, inciting hate amongst each other. Right. Gancham, I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on this particular aspect because we saw, we see a similar trajectory today where there is rising unemployment around the same time as the rise of majoritarian sentiment. So is there a parallel between what happened in Gujarat with the loss of aspirations for equality and not just loss of jobs, as Jan pointed out, with the youth from uh, subaltern classes and castes getting a training under Bajrangdal and organizations like that? And what's happening today? Are there any lessons or parallels we can draw? Yeah, yeah. But I think let me quickly add what Brad Jan is saying very correctly, see? but that also has to be linked to what she thinks. Before the Mandal Commission, Gujarat had first anti-reservation diets. So before the 89, that was in 81. Dalit's uh, activist was killed. And 81, the government which came on the name of OBC votes, the backward caste votes, compromised with the upper caste and almost gave a concession to most of the demands in 81. This was which government? That was the Congress government. And the important is that the Congress government, the Madhusri Solanki, came in power on the OBC votes. I think we know Now, there are a couple of things simultaneously that happened. In 81 or 82, there was an incident in Minachipuram in South India, uh, where the few Dalits were uh, converted to Muslims. And that created a proverb. Vishwa Hindu Parishad started a campaign and Mrs. Gandhi, who was the Prime Minister then, indirectly supported it. She also supported the VHP's program of Gangajar processions about it. Again, the OBC minister, this Madhusri Solanki, increased the quota for OBC all of a sudden, which created anti-reservation riots. And very cleverly, as part of the Congress factions and majority of the VHP, RSS, and that time the BJP, they manipulated and they translated anti-reservation, anti-agitations uh, into anti-Muslim agitations. So anti-reservation agitations converted into anti-Muslim agitations. And at that time, what Ian is saying, breakdown of the mills and also a passive role of a Majur Mahajan. Also, it's an ineffective role. All these things happen to people. And one more important thing, which is generally not known, that that time the Gujarat civil society, the intellectuals, so-called intellectuals of the media, also supported, because they were against reservations, so against, they were supporting indirectly the Hindutva kind of a politics. That there is no untouchability. All that is given is a false notion. And they preach unity among the Hindus. And one of the preachers of the civil society now this year got a government award of Padmasri. So it's a, they build the ideas and opinion in civil society and a cross-section of the society. And that reflected in the 90s. Right. It's very interesting, these two points you mentioned. Like, how does this happen? Like, how does an anti-reservation sentiment become an anti-Muslim sentiment? Because the reservations were not for Muslims, right? They were for OBCs and Dalits. How does this happen? Like, what is the narrative maneuvering which happens? Like, how do you make this transition? I mean, 
Yeah, you see, those who were against the reservations, upper caste, they give a call for Ahmedabad Band on a particular day. And at that time, the BJP and all these forces, RSS particularly, were worried that if this anti-reservation agitations continue to intensify, the Hindus will get divided. What is the strategy? So on a one day, they gave a call for Ahmedabad Band and a Murthyu gun. And on that day, in two localities, anti-Muslim riots took place. And that continued no, this, this uh, anti This Ahmedabad Band, and what was the second point you said? Murthyu gun of the reservation and the Murthyu gun converted into anti-Muslim riots. What does Mrityu Gan translate into English as? I'm sorry, I don't follow that uh, term, term. What does it mean? Death bail of the reservation. Okay. And this was much before 89. Wonder things, wonder and commander came. And then the commander started in Gujarat, a massive Hamgarse Hindu campaign for two years in 88, 89 on the eve of Rath or building the campaign for this. So this brings us to think, a topic which is both at the core of this book as well as the core of what's uh, been unfolding in India. And I would like both you and Jan to come on, come in with your views on this. Ideally, is that this fundamental contradiction at the heart of uh, the heart of this majoritarian Hinduism, uh, which is the graded hierarchy, as Ambedkar said, of caste. And this book also examines the question of how Hindutva is sort of striving with tremendous success it would seem, to build a singular community and you say a V that encompasses both the Savarna as well as the non-Savarna castes despite the history of oppression that unites them, so to speak. So what exactly is it that makes Hindutva so potently attractive to the marginalized that they are willing to make common cause with their caste superiors? I mean, especially at election time, despite knowing that once the elections are over, the Hindu status, as it were, is not going to change their caste status in their social life. So, what is going on here? Is it actually the fact, is it true, as some some proponents of subaltern Hindutva claim, that Hindutva does genuinely empower the Dalit Bahujan communities? Gancham, you want to go first? Then Jan can come in. Yeah. One quickly, I don't buy argument that participation of the OBC or Dalit in violence against the Muslim doesn't mean that they accept the Hindutva ideology. Because out of insecurity, certain kind of a mobilization. And one of the chapters, kind of a planning that RSS has done for mobilizing and creating insecurity. Important thing is that even 2002 riots after CSDS interviews show that majority of the Dalits were saying that all that happened in 2002 was not good. They were not approving about it. So I'm talking about Dalit and also OBC. Also, let us not forget that over uh, there's a fluctuations when Dalit Adivasis and OBC votes get fluctuated. They have not gone and blocked to the BJP. Whereas the end block vote of Banyas, Brahmins, other upper caste and the Patiyas, about 60 to 70 percent have gone to the BJP which were earlier for the Congress. So this is, and this is what now in UP that we can find it there. Majority upper caste votes for that, lower caste gets split between Congress and BJP or many other parties. And then when they vote for the BJP, it doesn't mean that they vote 
for the Hindutva. I would like to emphasize that. Okay. So when they vote for the BJP, they don't if they don't vote for the Hindutva, then what are they voting for? Are they voting against something? Against the Congress because or they want some kind of a security, employment, welfare and others, which the experience were not coming out during the Congress rule. So this is a structure. Right, yeah, Jan. Shampar, this is the heart this is the heart of the matter. Uh, it's very important what Gansyam has mentioned, that the violence at the bottom of the economy and society is not a communal violence. It's a violence because of competition for scarce resources. You have to understand that the bottom layers of Indian society and economy are living in a crisis. And not a short-term crisis, a crisis which has been lingering and building up from generation to generation. And in that situation, people compete with each other at the bottom of society for whatever income, for whatever work, waged work, is available. That is the bottom, that is the, 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 the crux of the matter. That is the violence that we see unfolding. And that violence is not now mitigated by welfareism. It, the violence is continuing because of the increasing inequality. The polarity increases. We all know that even under pandemic, and not even, but particularly under pandemic, the polarity has been further emphasized. Those at the top and those at the bottom. More richness at the top more poverty at the bottom. That is the heart of the violence which we see unfolding. It is not of a communal nature. It is competing for scarce resources in life. Right. You, 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 you were just talking about uh, you know, the scarce resources being one of the core elements of uh, Hindutva. Can you talk a little bit about, a little bit more, I mean, about the economic underpinnings of Hindutva? Because it clearly needs uh, the backing of big business uh, as we've seen so uh, there are two things i want to do, wanted you to comment on one of course is the fact that today there there is a sense of common sense understanding in india that what used to be welfare has sort of changed under the current prime minister and it's it's come to be known as modinomics where welfare doesn't mean investment in education and schools and uh, you know healthcare and so on but welfare is a kind of handout you know like free rations cash transfers so yeah so so this sort of feeds back into the popularity of the leader who is giving out uh, these handouts and this modinomics is seems to be working because especially in the up elections we do seem to get a lot of reports where people have said that they appreciate the fact that they've got free rations and cash transfers and it, even though it's not traditional welfare it's a form of maybe a, a perverse form of welfare which delivers something to the voter and this seems to be working uh, for the BJP and for Modi. That is number one. And secondly, shouldn't the BJ business community be worried about a deterioration or a breakdown in the rule of law, which would be inevitable if uh, if certain kinds of communal violence enjoy immunity? I'll come to that a bit later. But first, I want to reiterate what has been brought to the fore so far, that although Hindutva is a unifying gospel, it is a graded hierarchy that Hindu, Hindutva mobilizes people not on the basis of equality, but on the basis of inequality. 
There are those at the top and there are those at the bottom. And inequality has, be, has continued to be the structuring principle of Indian society and economy, inequality. So in that sense, Hindutva just follows what, it's, what, what, what the elect, its electorate want, to keep those at the bottom where they are and not to, to distribute wealth, to redistribute wealth, to redistribute the sources of existence, but to corner them and to concentrate them under, uh, in the higher layers of society. Hindutva is a graded hierarchy that is very important, despite its unifying gospel, we all Hindus. Hindutva is, uh, is structured in ranks, in ranks of those who are included and those who do not, who are not eligible to become included. Those, as I said, you know, I'm not so uh, impressed by the new welfareism, which has been also in the last uh, elections in Europe we talked about, the new welfareism. These are doles handed out. These are doles. I've seen that in the Melas in Gujarat when Narendra Modi was chief minister there. It were doles which he handed out discretionally, arbitrarily, haphazardly, but not structurally. And we are not talking here about either healthcare or education, which, of course, are completely outside, have remained outside this so-called new welfareism. It's a dull system. It's not a kind of poverty alleviation mechanism. But isn't the dull system working electorally for Prime Minister Modi? At a short time, because people can be, you know, convinced for a short time can be accommodated for a short time, but it won't work in a long duration. Where is, are the jobs? Where can income be gained? Where can I send my child to school? Where can I go with my medical problems? If that problem is not solved, then nothing will be solved at the bottom of society and economy. But we come now, you know, to the next question, and that is the demise and bankruptcy of Congress. Why do people, even at the bottom layer, in the bottom layers, are now siding with uh, Modi, so it seems? Because what Congress promised was never delivered. Poverty alleviation, Garibi Hatao, it was never uh, delivered. And as I said, you can, you can persuade people for a long time, but not for all the time. Right. We Before we move, uh, Jan, sorry to interrupt you. We are running out of time. We just have one more question to go. I just wanted Gansham to, uh, to to sort of add anything he may have had to this particular question before we move forward. Just small point. Whatever Jan has said is absolutely right. But as far as we are concerned at present day politics, uh, the revolution may come or may not come. The votes are important. And don't is important to catch the votes. As simple as that. And unlike the Congress, at least distribution of dough is very carefully done with Modi's photograph uh, in to the poor. Cylinder is given and Modi is there. Or something else is given and Modi is there. So, and Modi 
what he has done in the Gujarat is also in all India. Modi has eliminated the brokers. Doesn't depend on that. It directly built one-to-one relationship with the voters. That he is the giver. He is the beneficiary. He is the elder brother. He is a good giver and good. Second thing that's important is that in the 80s, when we talk about the 80s, the BJP or RSS evolved a concept called samrasta. That is a harmony, not against the sam, samta, equality. Against the equality is a harmony. Harmony is other words of the Hindutva. Everybody succumb to the higher values or Brahminical values about it. And that perpetuated about it. That's all. Right. So, how how are, how are the subalterns okay with this? I mean, they, they are sort of induced by talk of, uh, we are all Hindus in the sense we are all equal. But at the same time, we are not because you are not talking about equality, you are talking about harmony. So, how do, the, how, does, how do they not see this contradiction? No, no. What are the alternatives that they have? They know very well and that's how the BJP is not able to deal with the contradictions. You remember, uh, just see the t- 2014... Modi's speeches or 2012 Modi's speeches in Gujarat and 2014, he would not use the word Hindu at that time. He would talk about Vikas. And even the last elections, he talked repeatedly about the nationalism, about the Hindutva, about Ram Mandir, about the Varanasi and all kinds of things. Because neoliberalism is not giving him able to provide even a door to the poorest of the poor. So how to win them over? So now he talks first about the poor rather than the middle class. So he changes strategy. What I call this is Jugalbandi or Vikas and Hindutva. Vikas and Hindutva. Whenever there is a crisis, he brings the Pakistan. He brings Hindutva, Ramandi, Mathura and many other things that will continue. I think this is important, uh, Sampar to point out the vulnerability of the Hindutva agenda. And that vulnerability is its economic agenda. It is uh, crony capitalism, which is the the color of of the day, uh, crony capitalism. And in the the political roles of Modi and uh, Amit Shah are doubled economically by capitalists like Ambani and Adani. The older captains of industry, the older captains of industry are more critical of what's going on. Think of not only Tata, but also of Bajaj, who are saying uh, maybe uh, this is not going where, it, where we should put our, our efforts. The policy towards the informal economy, which employs 90% of India's workforce, is a total disregard of the agenda, of the, the, the program that with the National Commission on, Employ- on uh, Enterprises in the Unorganized Sector in 2004 under Arjun Sankuta brought forward. The, though that commission is still very important, and I uh, urge that uh, readers uh, look at those reports because they are totally neglected, already under con- Congress rule, as which I said is also neoliberal and has not left that uh, policy. But think of Modi's demonetization ambit in 2016, a total failure and a blunder, as was the way the, the GST tax, the goods and services tax, half a year later, was meant to get hold 
of the accumulation of capital in the black circuit without touching the exploitation of the workforce. The new labor codes condemned as jungle rats by the Bharatiya Masdu Sangh, the trade union link, uh, the wing, uh, which is with the BJP, but they, they condemn it as, as jungle uh, rats, making, even in the pandemic, employment more onerous, lengthening the workday from the standard eight hours to 12 hours. We see a growing indebtedness of the laboring poor, boiling over in destitution. And the answer of Modi to that is the Atma Nirba doctrine, the doctrine of self, self-reliance. He failed to generate the 20 million jobs which he promised in the campaign in 2014. And he has turned it around now. We say every, every poor man, every poor woman, every poor child, basically they have to find their own solution. It's self-employment, self-reliance and self-exploitation as the economic gospel. They are those who are unable to become self-employed and self-reliant. They are excluded from public coefficients. They don't get access to PDS, to Narega and other benefits. We see a policy of exclusion, denying the rights of citizenship for the non-deserving poor. It is a return of so- to social Darwinism. And that is the vulnerability of Hindutva. The economic vulnerability of Hindutva is a major one, and that will blow up in the time to come. Right. I mean, that's a very important, I think, uh, sub-theme to be looked at probably perhaps in a different podcast. You're saying that the biggest vulnerability of uh, Hindutva is its economic agenda, which sort of rides on on a, on a, a dual agenda of catering to crony capitalist interests on the one hand, and this creation of this uh, entire class of what you said, uh, to use your phrase, the non-deserving poor. I don't know what it means in terms of, you know, logic, but that definitely seems to be kind of a class that is being created. And before we wind up, just one final question where both of you can come in and then uh, we can close. So before the advent of uh, Narendra Modi, it almost was a truism that Mandal and Mandir or Mandal and Kamandal, as they say, were the opposing two opposing poles of the Indian political spectrum or at least North Indian uh, politics. But by stringing together a voter constituency of several non-dominant OBC castes and marginalized Dalit castes, which lack adequate political representation. Hindutva forces seem to have found a way to permanently neutralize the caste factor in Indian elections. So, has Mandir decisively triumphed over Mandal once and for all, as many seem to be arguing, and that seems to be the case already in Gujarat? And if so, what does it mean for the future of democratic politics in India? Very quickly, I don't think the attempt or the Hindutva, though theoretically Narendra Modi repeatedly says that he doesn't believe in caste, hmm? there is nothing like a caste, but he and his subordinates use caste very cleverly. They focus, because they take it for granted the upper caste have with them, they focus on OBC and Dalit, and the way in which they, they divided uh, in Gujarat, but also recent elections in UP. They, they split about the thing. One time they will we know what the Mayavati, sometimes other groups and that kind of things about it. He gave importance to Maurya and all kinds of things like that. Because they know that without that support, they cannot rule the country. 
but at the same time they know that they cannot deliver goods to them now unfortunately both ambedkar and lohia ambedkar i think you have to take ambedkar in in 90 this context uh, he did not or he ignored for a time being the class issue and he over emphasized on on dalit issue he was aware of these things and lohia ignored the, the class issue because within the obc there are middle class that has emerged and that middle class is the same aspiration as the brahmins and banias at the one level but at another level they face the discrimination when they really assert equality with the brahmins and banias in schools in colleges in offices uh, they experience di- some kind of a discriminations talk about quota and all kinds of things and that created a tension and bjp has no way to solve this contradiction i think how it emerged in a future we just don't know about right yan i think uh, sampa that suggesting that mandal the days of mandal are over uh, and mandir you know the mon- the the poor don't have the time even to go to mandir they are busy with other uh, with other problems than uh, visiting temples and 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 praying and ritual uh, they don't spend time on that do consider that uh, when we talk about uh, the triumph of mandir over mandal you're talking about the middle classes you're not talking about the working classes when you talk about the working classes you have to change your lens on the hindutva think as i said of the scarcity of jobs of work of income think of that and then you realize that your first drive is to get your daily food and not only for yourself but for your dependents uh, for your uh, for for your household how do people at the bottom of the economy and society how do they get a job how do they get access to waged work through their mandal through their caste connections through the through the social fabric of which they are part and parcels that's how they go out and find work mandal is for them very important not in its ritual sense but in its life giving sense of gaining livelihood of gaining work of gaining income and that is so important to understand you have to turn away from your lens also as the middle class are still completely involved in the urban in the smart city concept of of uh, modi the smart city concept turn your lens from the working class to the to the working class turn your lens and see how they were driven home during the pandemic and home is in the rural hinterland focus your attention on what is happening in the rural hinterland you see people being driven out of their habitat to gain enough for survival for themselves and for their dependents but work and life remain separated have become separated from the in the working class colonies there is no work in the working class colonies where they live in the hinterland they have to go out they have to go out to other directions in the in the countryside other sides of employment or to the city but they have to come back again because they are not allowed to settle down in the city 
if you are poor, there is no way that you get access to space in the city. Space has become a capitalist issue. Space is not something where you dwell. Space is something you have to buy. And we see, and in that, India is quite unique. We see an ongoing already since independence of people leaving their house, leaving their family, leaving their kin, leaving their household to, all, to go and earn a living. But they are not allowed to bring their dependents along with them. Some do that, who are the better off among the self-employed, and you find them congregated in urban slums. But look at the rural slums, look at the working class colonies in the countryside, where the people are driven out, are not allowed to stay on, there is no work, there is no income. They are driven out, but they are driven back as well. And they are, for them, the caste, the caste to which they belong, the community to which they belong. That is important, because through that community, they try to survive. Right. I think to understand what's happening in terms of political changes and uh, social changes in the last 20-30 years in India, there is no doubt that one has to go back uh, to Gujarat and what's happened in Gujarat in the time before that from pre-independence and post-independence decades. And, and the best way to do that, I would imagine, is to start with this book, Gujarat, Cradle and Harbinger of Identity Politics, Injurious Frame of Communalism. And it's published by Tulika Books, uh, one of India's uh, leading publishing houses. And thank you so much, Yan. And thank you, Gansham, for coming on board for this uh, podcast and sharing your thoughts and comments on this excellent book. I would urge readers to go and check it out. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 